Hello, and welcome to part two on our exploration of modern slavery. Last week, we talked to Bruno about fisheries in Peru and how there are structural risks to small-scale fishes that makes them vulnerable to slavery. But one of the real challenges of the fisheries in Peru is that it's really hard to spot. And so today we're going to be talking to my best friend. Her name's Andrea. Her job is to assist big companies of more than $100 million in accordance with the Australian Modern Slavery Act. Bruno and Andrea provide really different perspectives. Bruno provides a perspective of people that are on the ground and how vulnerabilities play out and what makes people vulnerable to exploitation. Whereas Andrea is actively training companies on how to make sure that when slavery is identified within their supply chains, how to work through that so that survivors of modern slavery are cared for, but that they don't lose their source of income, making them even more vulnerable. There are common threads between Andrea's and Bruno's perspectives. In particular, you might recognize when Andrea says the middlemen, that there are multiple middlemen, and that there are meaningfully opaque supply chains. That's pretty similar to the way that the fisheries are run in Peru. Also, the way that environmental degradation drives people towards enslavement. Last week, Bruno talked about how when there are bad fishing years or when there's overfishing from big fisheries or factory fisheries, small-scale fishers are more likely to take out loans, and those loans may be malicious. Now, we're going to move on to talk more broadly about modern slavery this week, and so I would like to provide a word of warning. This episode doesn't shy away from the reality of slavery, and that means that we're going to be talking about child sexual abuse and forced marriages. So if you're not feeling up to that today, that's totally fine. Feel free to skip over this one. But one of the things I think that everyone should check out is the amazing resources that Andrea put me onto in the show notes, which are a whole myriad of ways to raise awareness and combat modern slavery right here at home. So we're back. So Eve, this week, as opposed to uh, the previous chat about the, the Fisher people of Peru, this one got a lot more technical and uh, also about what we can do in Australia. Yeah, so this week we're going to be talking to my best friend, Andrea, who consults big businesses on how they can implement the Modern Slavery Act. So yeah, it's a lot more technical. It's a lot more sort of into the nuts and bolts of how we combat it. And I found it really interesting to talk to her. So that it is truly like you actually do enjoy talking to her. Or you're just butting her up because you know she's your best friend. I, I guess we were talking about this just before Eve, and you know it's rare to get to have chats like this with our friends about deep and meaningful and important subjects. I guess like on a recording for a podcast and not you know like at two a.m. at a house party. Yeah, I feel like it was the first time I've been both sober, and most of the time when Andrea talks about this. I kind of get into like a Parks and Rec style, like, you're the best and I love you kind of zone. <laughs> you're going to change the world. <laughs> a little bit of that came out in this there interview. There is a bit I, of I, that. I, you know. 
But like, if you add like four beers, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that does sound very Parks and Rec. Yes, um, but I mean, like, whereas, and, and honestly, yes, like it, it does. This chat will take you into a little bit of the the laws and regulations and kind of the the surprisingly interesting minutia. And and one thing you've got to look forward to that I found really fascinating, um, and I'm going to be thinking about for a long time after this is just that we actually struggle to classify what modern slavery is. Did do you have a sense after the episode one, part one of this, Eve, like going into it, what was your kind of um, definition, I guess, of modern slavery if you had to define it to someone and then they're going to learn more from Andrea? Yeah, going into it, I would have kind of defined it as a situation where you have to work for someone there's no other opportunity but because you cannot leave for threat of violence or that you physically can't leave because you're for example stuck on a boat so that's what I would define as but yeah like you said Andrea has a much clearer understanding than me (laughs) of this yeah yeah and leaves out so clearly it was still like it's it is such a it's such a topic Eve that like you still you understand why some people are still like oh there isn't slavery anymore because and we were talking about this a little bit before it is such a a hidden thing right so so even just being able to get down to the point of defining what modern slavery is is such a powerful thing and when you start to define it you realize kind of how everywhere it is um so in in part one we went to peru and in this one uh well you're you're both in Australia, and we kind of talk a little bit about we learn about uh, the Australian context. What do we learn that people can do? Yeah, so at the end of last episode, I sort of said what I thought you should look out for, and within this episode, I think you should look out for opportunities to make change and go harder within both legislation, but also for brands and how we consume Mm, mm -hmm. to combat modern slavery at a really systemic level because we are in this privileged position where we have our consumer power and we have a vote and we have the way, like we have the means to engage with modern slavery at a democratic level rather than an individual level. And I think we really need to step that up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, Eve, I've got so much more I want to talk to you about this, but I do want to like maybe put it at the end of the chat so people can have a chance to listen to you and Andrea and kind of process this themselves. We'll see you again soon after the interview. Okay. Hello, I'm here with Andrea. How are you going? Hi, I'm good, thank you, Eve. How are you? I'm well. Yeah. It's weird that... So you and I lived in Sydney together up until like last week and now you're in Melbourne and I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy for you, but I am sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. But... Um... I think it's a very good thing that we are able to talk and that we have enough technology to just keep in touch and similar. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. What a time to be alive. So (laughs) (laughs) we'll start off with, yeah, Andrea, like who are you and what do you do? Yeah. Well, um, well, first of all, thank you for 
having me. It's really exciting. So I am a sustainability professional. I have been working for the past about five years in different projects related to sustainability in different sectors. Over the past years, I've been working on different projects, uh, mostly both large-scale and short-term projects with uh, different um, entities like uh, supranational organizations, private and public industry, and I've been mostly focusing on human rights due diligence, um, including human rights, uh, risk identification, mitigation, remediation, supplier screening and developing uh, development of training programs etc I have been advising clients on their compliance obligations and well really like best practices uh, with the modern slavery act policy alignment with um, the ISO 2400 which is the ISO for sustainable procurement and the international standards on social responsibility. Yeah, that's that's what I bit of uh, what I do. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. And so you did mention modern slavery in the context of like social responsibility and human rights. Let's start off with what is modern slavery? Yeah, well, um, modern slavery—it's it's still not—it's a term that is not globally defined yet. However, the one that I'm going to be using now, it's the definition that the Australian Modern Slavery Act uses. It refers to mostly an umbrella term, but it mostly talks about any situation of exploitation where a person can't refuse or can't leave work because of threats, violence, um, abuse of power, coercion or deception. Now the Australian government defines modern slavery as conducts that could constitute any offence under laws that already exist, uh, mostly under the Commonwealth Criminal Code. The key things that modern slavery involves is uh, slavery, uh, servitude, child labour, forced labour, human trafficking, bondage and forced marriage and deceptive recruitment, uh, deceptive recruiting for labour or services. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. how did you come to work combating modern slavery? Like you said, you were a sustainability professional. So like what was your journey to come to care about modern slavery yeah, well, um, it started some uh, years ago when I was involved in a project that aimed at a sustainable use of uh, water in agriculture. And, I mean, the, the findings and the work done in there have uh, various areas that we could talk about. One of the, the areas that I was, I was mostly involved in, I was mm, more passionate about, was the human factor. So... One of the things that I was seeing in this project is that environmental factor was very linked to the human factor. And it was impossible to have any improvement in one of those factors without having it in the others. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I found the most motivating (laughs) is that (laughs) there were different things or different areas to tackle problems. And when we were working, I, I was seeing that a lot of those, a lot of the work that can't be done is in the company supply chain. Mm-hmm. There is a great risk of modern slavery in in our organization supply chain. So I started to be interested in that, 
Um, I just wanted to know more about what organizations can do to avoid these situations, to eradicate modern slavery. And besides, I mean, um, I was also interested in collaboration between governments, NGOs, academia, and private um, industry to, to tackle these problems. So I started to, well, I did a master on environmental management and development, and Woo! then I started. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the listeners, that's and, what um, we did together, and that's where we met. So, yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, yeah. informative gap. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, that's um, how I started to to focus more in this area, mm-hmm. and that's that's how I ended up working in this. Yeah, awesome. So there was a lot in there which I want to unpack, but on the for the first sort of question is that you mentioned agriculture. Um, last episode we talked about fisheries and small and medium em- enterprises, but how they are vulnerable to using modern slavery in their supply chains. But that obviously encompasses a lot of different industries. Like how does modern slavery differ between industries like you know fashion and agriculture and fisheries and hospitality and everything else one one thing that it's um important to mention is that there's one of the similarities or a starting point for people who end up in modern slavery is the vulnerability position that they they have um, now, the, um, there are different entry points, and those can lead into different industries. Um, for example, in the case of trafficking, which involves different parts like the recruitment, the transfer, or obtaining um, individuals, let's say, through abduction, fraud, or force to exploit them. Now, these exploitations can range from forced labor to forced marriage or commercial sex work, but also different, um, but also similar cases can lead into other sectors like construction or uh, farming. Yeah, okay, so there is a common thread in terms of the recruitment and the exploitation that there is that sort of violence against victims of modern slavery. So for example, in the case of of fisheries, what would that process look like? Right. Um, well, the, a big driving force for a lot of for a lot of industries are poverty, poverty and need. Um, so, for example, in the case of fisheries, there is a a complex interrelationship between overfishing and labor exploitation. So, for example, um, I mean, I'll go more into into how this process looks like, but you, we can talk about the entry points of people in slavery-like conditions in, in, in different uh, situations. For example, they can end up cleaning houses or, or flats or other sort of cleaning tasks, or they produce the clothes we wear, they pick up the fruit and the veggies we eat, they, well, one of the most... Uh, 
sadly f- uh, famous cases is uh, the seafood industry. Uh, what fisheries um, they could end up digging for minerals used uh, in in our phones, in our laptops, uh, electric cars, makeup, or they can end up working in construction jobs. So there are different entry points uh, driven by necessity and some other factors, for example, climate change. There is no same process for people who end up in modern slavery. Mm-hmm. So it, it will be different situation driven by, by the context, by the political factors, by the environmental factors and the social factors. But it there is a, a whole industry behind that pushes this because the gain, the financial profit from modern slavery, it's estimated by the International Labor Organization that is about 150 billion US dollars per year. And of course, we're talking that there will be another significant amount of money that is not considered into this. So the way that it's it's done by, for example, drug cartels or organized uh, crime is there's there's a whole um, force behind Mm-hmm. that could identify vulnerabilities and needs in people and then drag them into these situations. Um, now, for example, talking about um, talking about recruitment, but recruitment, for example, in the case of um, construction, it's, it's different how it works, for example, in the Middle East. In the Middle East, some of the indicators for modern slavery are allowed in the Middle East. Uh, however, it's, um, you know, identifying a need, the the companies or the middlemen, let's call it, although there can be several levels of the middlemen, but the middlemen identify the people. Um, and there's always a promise of, of a financial gain. There's always a promise of... Um, a job. Uh, there's also promises for for visas in the case of developed uh, developed countries. So they charge a certain amount of money, saying that they will, for example, apply for the visas or they will cover the cost of accommodation, food, transportation, etc. And the the people end up giving that money, giving those resources. Um, and they are then put in a situation of risks. Um, now that situation of risk can develop in different ways. They could end up, well, they can end in debt, um, the bondage that then could also end in forced labor. So uh, yeah, the entry points are, are different. Uh, but it all starts with identifying needs in vulnerable people. And at the end, there is a lot of financial gain and people that will benefit out of that. So, Yeah, and, and there's a definite environmental justice factor that you've mentioned already in that vulnerability in the sense that food security and water security play a really key role in protecting people from slavery. Would you mind talking about the clearly complex relationship between the environmental factors and modern slavery? Yeah, sure. 
so I guess when we talk about those links, it's also important to remember that sustainability includes several pillars. It's the environment as well as the economy, as well as the social, the human factor. Uh, so those connections and relationships more modern slavery, environmental degradation and climate change, for example, it's um, sometimes difficult to conceptualize. If we talk about the environmental aspect of modern slavery, I guess we could maybe put it in two areas. One that you can talk about the sectors and uh, the sectoral nexus with of modern slavery with different sectors. Let's say the most the, the ones that have been found to have the most environmental effect are fisheries. Uh, fields for agriculture, uh, the forest, and uh, the work in factories. Uh, secondly, we talk about the the interactions between modern slavery, uh, climate change, and environmental degradation. We also need to talk about how the slavery practices shape one another, like the slavery practices have an impact on the environmental change, and then these are continually, they're in a, uh, they are in a continuous loop that shape one another. So, um, for example, um, in, in the case of agriculture, there are certain vulnerabilities in, in, in agriculture <laughs> communities that are associated with the impacts of climate You're doing change, so well, mate. But like... also they have yeah. been aggravating stressors oh, in... Yeah farming-based regions, certain system, communities babe. that the system. <laughs> their, Not their the livelihoods we don't shame. are <laughs> based on, you know, they have a certain agricultural practice. Uh, we have been okay. seeing in recent years that there's shifting patterns in weather, or for example, shifting rainfall patterns. So that unpredictability of of droughts and floods and the increasing mm -hmm. numbers of environmental shocks are affecting communities for example uh, as you know climate change adaptation is very demanding financially speaking and materially speaking so some communities don't have the resources to, to mitigate this. So they end up in situations where they don't have that reliable source of income or food. And they end up in situations that fisheries, for example, can help them to sustain their family with the promise of, of helping them. But it's not the case. Also, th there has been several cases where climate mm -hmm. change has affected so, for example, uh, Mozambique has been suffering also a shifting pattern of rainfall and droughts, as well as floods. This has been affecting how communities and families have access to, to money. Um, they don't have any other option than marrying their, their children. And according to some government reports um, in Africa, one of the big side effects of floods and droughts have been children marrying at 13, 12 year old. Uh, because that is seen as, well, you know, we don't have any, any more money. We don't have a way of feeding our 
children sounds terrible, but if our children, if our girl marries these men, yeah, we don't have to provide that food anymore. We don't have to stress about that anymore. And sometimes I do it with the intention that someone will look after their children. Um, however, in these cases of, for example, forced marriage, they end up in situations of being sexually exploited or in domestic servitude, etc. So um, that that yeah, so that link of um, of how the country's economic development depend on on the environment is affecting communities. Yeah, and how climate change is making people make impossible decisions what you've all been describing so well is might be sort of overwhelming for people that are listening for the first time considering we have a lot of activists that are doing their best (laughs) to create a stable climate you helped organizations report on their compliance with the modern slavery act here in australia what is the Modern Slavery Act and how does it work? When we talk about the Modern Slavery Act, I think it would be important to mention as well that there are types of different types of laws in relation to slavery and human trafficking and their supply chains. Um, I, um, I would say that mostly I divide those in three categories. One is legislation or regulations that focus on disclosure uh, second, due diligence regulations, and third, trade compliance regulations. Now, the Modern Slavery Act falls into the category of disclosure-based regulations. So what it means is that for a company to be compliant, they have to issue reports describing the actions that they are taking to get rid of slavery and human trafficking in their supply chains. So this act of reporting compels companies to take action to ensure that they get rid of slavery and human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So it's a continuous improvement. Now, the way that works in Australia, and and, um, maybe some people are already aware of this, is that the Modern Slavery Act in Australia is the result of a learning process. It built upon the UK Modern Slavery Act, but also built upon other mm-hmm. other legislations, uh, like, for example, the California Transparency in Supply Chains Act. So the Modern Slavery Act says that any entities that have business in Australia and that have a minimum annual consolidated revenue of $100 million, have reporting obligations. And I was, as I was mentioning before, in the types of regulations, they need to address the risks of modern slavery in their operations and supply chain, mm-hmm. and also in, in the other entities that they own or control, um, as well as the steps that they have taken to respond. To, to this risk that were identified. Um, now, the Mother's Library Act has a reporting criteria. There are seven points on that. Um, it's mandatory, which is a big and important step. 
Now, the reporting criteria, I, I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into the detail. Yes, I do. This is great. Okay, okay, <laughs> great. Um, I want people to, like, take notes and then go and, like, take action. Okay. So <laughs> get, get real specific. Um, great. So, um, yeah, so the Mother Slavery Act has a reporting criteria. There are seven points in that. Um, mostly it's about identifying which entity is reporting, describing the structure, operations, and supply chain, um, which are the risks of modern slavery practices in the reparations and supply chains. Also, they need to describe the actions taken by the entity that is reporting to assess and address the risks. Then they have to describe if the way that they assess the effectiveness of those actions to address the risks. Um, also, they need to talk about the consultation processes with any other entities that they own or control, and, well, any other information that the entity considers relevant. Uh, so, preparing for these, for these modern slavery uh, reporting, there are companies that already have a significant... A significant work done. This is because of uh, the way, like for example, if, if companies already have been trading, exporting, or working in other legislations, it's mostly sure that any place that you go will have some sort of law or regulation that oversees illegal entry of money. So some companies already have a way to start or have a start. Um, some companies don't. So um, for preparing for this, it's important that all the reporting entities start with reviewing their supply chains and the reparations to, to comply with all these seven criteria. At a minimum, um, and what, what is recommended is that reporting entities need to consider some steps. So mapping what is the, the company or the organization structure. What are their business are doing? What are their supply chains? Um, then they need to consider the formulation of policies and procedures in relation to modern slavery. These, maybe some companies already have um, policies in place. Um, if not, it's important to identify any gaps, uh, adapt any policies, and procedures that the company has to formulate new policies as necessary. Um, then it's important that they do a risk assessment so they could they can identify those parts of the business operations and their supply chains where there's more risk. When we talk about assessing and managing the identified risks, we talk about uh, doing further due diligence. In, in, in the operations and supply chains. Um, and of course, reviewing and adapting any processes that needs to be adapted with their suppliers. They also need to consider and establish processes and KPIs to monitor that they are taking the right steps and of course to, to see monitor how effective these actions taken are. And it's important also to consider the remedial steps when modern slavery is identified. Um, and well, 
lastly but not least, develop some training for for not only the supply chains but also internal training on how to identify modern slavery risks and their impacts. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty comprehensive in terms of what they have to report. Um, and I understand that, you know, for a company, what their activities are and what their supply chains look like is a really great place to start in terms of minimizing that risk. But as you've kind of talked about, this is a very complex system. So what would you like to see to further combat modern slavery from Australia? What, would, what sort of policies would you like to see or what sort of actions would you like to see? Well, that's, um, maybe I would narrow that to, uh, I would start mentioning the complexities of supply chain. Yes, this is a topic that has been talked a lot. And at the same time, it also serves as a justification for companies to say, oh, well, you know, we have very complex supply chain and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, While this is true, there is also big companies with very complex supply chains that had been taken action. One of the, the things that I've been seeing that is important is the communication between the company and their suppliers. Something that I that um, would be good to be aware of is that it's, it's good to have that level of understanding since the beginning. So the more honest communication there is with the suppliers, the better it will be the process to find and remediate and mitigate um, modern slavery. Businesses are doing it in, in different ways, but when they enhance or improve any capabilities to prevent and address slavery-like cases in the reparations and participate in responsible global supply chains, that's something that... I think that's an interesting point because when there's a very clear statement of the company's values, when those are transferred into the suppliers and the suppliers are aware of what they're uh, of what they need to adhere to they become more responsive and that effect cascades into other suppliers one of the other things that i, I would like to maybe personally see but also is is aligned with several guidelines and recommendations for businesses is that Finding modern slavery in the supply chains is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Mm-hmm. Yes, maybe you need to look into tier three, tier four, sometimes you see in tier one. So it it depends in, in the supply chain. Um, but the moment that uh, um, a slavery-like case is found... It's important to have all the proper communication channels with the suppliers, but as well to make clear that when you find a modern slavery case, you need to address it. It's it's better to address those cases rather than um, deciding to get rid and just finish contracts with that company. Mm. Yeah, because that, that will only 
put the person in a more vulnerable situation and displace that into another case that it could it could be worse. Um, so some of the positive responses and maybe something that um, I would like to keep seeing is if that focus on rewarding finding cases of modern slavery. Yeah. Um, I mean, not well, rewarding as in celebrating that there is an honest channel um, and that, for example, if training has been done right, the suppliers know how to not only address that scenario, but only to identify it. Um, that's also a good thing that um, that idea that it could be would be can continue happening or can start happening. Yeah. So like keeping the level of honesty open such that people firstly find cases of modern slavery within their supply chain and rather than try and hush it up, they try and uh, fix it. You know, they work with the supplier to ensure that that isn't the situation of their workers. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. And and that's that's one of the important things that um, we've been seeing while working with big or small companies. The more they're reinforced that w- with the suppliers, the more that is uh, communication of oh hey look you know like this is the training. This is how you uh, this is how you can identify it. This is what you have to do when this happens. Then when the suppliers know that the company will react in a positive way rather than just cancelling any source of income or any contracts, then they feel they are okay to share that information. So that's definitely a good thing to see. Yeah, I think that's probably everything. Uh, What would you, like, how, if you could, you know, have someone that was looking to, get active to combat modern slavery from Australia, what would you suggest to them? Well, modern slavery is something that needs a lot of personal action, but also it takes a lot of political will and it's something that needs a lot of research. We, in a a personal level, we can do some things and by no means we shouldn't address this, but also we need to be aware that people have a very effective way of keeping in check the companies and the businesses. Mm -hmm. So maybe what I would recommend would be to, first of all, inform each other. Um, Do some research, see what it is. Maybe there there are some guides in different websites where you can find which products, like, I don't know, for example, coffee or chocolates or brands are are at most Um, risk-free. One of the other things that uh, it's important, or, well, one of the things that is interesting to do is checking our own slavery footprint. Um, so we can, there's a survey online that you can do and mm-hmm. it pretty much tells you how many slaves work for you. And it uses your your input and your 
lifestyle, uh, what you eat, what you consume, etc., to tell you how many how many slaves work for you. I think personally that's something interesting to see because sometimes we we think that we're not helping to that, or we think that we are, but it's not very that we don't have a, a big contribution to that. Yeah, and and it, and it's quite confronting to have like the number of people, you know, that are behind all the stuff you consume. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess starting with that baseline for ourselves, mm-hmm. then we can start, you know, adding some knowledge into which products are um, at more risk, and then. Whenever we buy something, we can shop informed. We can buy for a trade which, or buy with certain uh, products with under certain certifications that ensure that they are produced in an ethical way, that they have fair labor conditions, that there are fair prices, uh, that they are looking into community development and the environmental sustainability. Um, another thing that we could use is reuse and recycle. The less we consume, that's not only a, a positive thing for environment, but also for social justice. And maybe another thing that I would say is that we should support companies that have a transparent supply chain. There are some partnerships like or initiatives, like the Global Business Coalition Against Human Trafficking, and we can know which companies have these transparent supply chains and it's good when we support that. Also, as an individual, we have the power to speak up, to you know, take a stand. And if you have a favorite brand or if you have a favorite product or something that you're not very clear on what they do, you can always send letters to, to, know, to the companies and ask them to, well, ask them to pretty much end slavery or contribute to the eradication of slavery. There are some procurement platforms and other platforms that can make easy for companies to to eradicate modern slavery or to start taking steps for the eradication. Other thing maybe that we could do is just buy survivor-made goods. So what we want to do is to empower the people who... Well, we want to empower the victims. Mm-hmm. Any people that has been in any modern slavery or any slavery-like condition, they need to reach that that stage of empowerment. So when we buy those goods, it's a way of um, of supporting that. Yeah. And as consumers, we also... I mean... You know, we do enough research when we want to buy a product and it's not always maybe for ethical reasons. Sometimes it's for the performance of the product or, yeah. I don't know, other factors. But one of the things that I uh, um, that I suggest is to look into if a company has modern slavery statements, check those read the sustainability reports. You don't have to read all the sustainability <laughs> reports because it's, it's too much. But, but you can um, check what they are doing. You can read which actions they are taking. 
there is um, also different organizations that do media screening, that they do fact checks. So that's always uh, something that we need to be uh, constantly doing. Mm. Yeah. That's that's probably a great place to end it. Um, Yeah, just ending on a high and a whole range of actions that you can take. I also, when you said about lobbying companies, there are some really creative campaigns to address modern slavery, especially in fashion, um, that have gone ahead and where uh, companies have made really significant changes very quickly. So I'm happy to link information about that as well as all of the resources that Andrea listed in the show notes. So, Andrea, thanks so much for coming on, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you. Ah. (laughs) And thanks for listening. It's my pleasure. It's always great to see all the, the things that can be done through people who are interested into doing so into just uh, social justice and just improving where we live and the way people live but also it's great to see people who are aware of we just want to make a better place for everyone and we are all responsible of So that, again, was Eve's best friend and a sustainability expert and an expert on the Modern Slavery Act, Andrea. Um, Eve, there was a lot within that. It was really, really interesting, and I was I was struck by so much of it. And I guess to maybe get started here in our kind of like post-interview chat, the, the thing that I'm really struck by is that like, especially after, you know, growing up reading a lot of like Civil War history and like American history, like... And that kind of being my framework for understanding what what slavery is and what it looks like. Like, slavery is still very real. And as I've learned through this episode, like, it, it is accurate to call it that, even though it feels weird acknowledging that there's still slavery in 2020. It's not like one group of people who look one way, you know, their skin color is one way, and they're owning a different group of people. It's way more insidious than that. Like, but it's no less real than that. Like, that was really striking to me. Is that is that kind of sound naive, I guess, to you? That, like, that I'm kind of just realizing that, like, okay, it, it doesn't have to look exactly like American slavery in the South to still be slavery. I don't think it's naive. I think it is by design. So when I studied a little bit of political ecology at uni, and what you learn in political ecology is that the system... In the same way that the U.S. is now having a, rec- a reckoning that the system that from which slavery developed wasn't dismantled, and in that same vein, the phenomena that is slavery was just displaced and hidden, and just changed form. And in doing that, it was moved spatially to a place where if it wasn't socially acceptable for slavery to occur, it was hidden and it was moved to a different part of the world. And so it's not naive, but it is important to recognise that it was intentional. Yeah. Yeah. 
So like we're the only one, like me, like I, I'm I'm the one that's surprised. But like, why? It just it, it is because of lack of transparency and like you know people don't want you to know that this system is still ongoing. I suppose. Yeah, and that the brands and companies that engage in it, they don't want you to see what they're doing because they know that it's absolutely abhorrent to their customers, which might sound overwhelming, but it's also a really great opportunity to create change. Yeah, because as soon as you become aware, you you don't... The, the thing you're getting, which might be like a cheaper product, like a marginally like, hey, I saved 20% on this thing versus this other thing. Like, as soon as you become aware of that real cost, I think that is really motivating. And, and you know, we've got, you know, little examples of, of uh, you know, who gives a crap and, and like sort of brands in Australia that do set themselves apart by being cruelty free. Like they, they tend to get rewarded by the market. Do, do you feel like that is... Not to kind of like other, you know, neoliberal or yuppie or hippie or whatever kind of word you want for like, it, it, does it actually feel powerful what we can do as a consumer in the face of such like a inhuman and cruel system? I think buying power is one thing and it's a powerful thing and that if you can afford to engage in it, that's great. But what Andrea highlighted was that this is something that if we get politically active and we change the laws within our countries, then brands and companies have to be beholden to that. They have to report. And if they find slavery, they have to change. And so I think like boycotting and buying ethical products is important. But I think what's really important here is to see the systemic issue at play and to resist it on a government level. Sounds good. Hey, thank you so much for this amazing two-parter. I really did learn a lot. And um, I'm personally going to pledge to be more conscious about thinking hard about buying the, the cheapest thing and, you know, thinking more about, okay, what is the true cost here? And how would I feel if I met the person who was making this product I'm about to consume? Would I be proud of myself for benefiting from their toil? Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> that's that, that's what I wanted out of this. So I'm really happy. All right. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Thanks, Eve. Thanks, Mark. Talk to you next time. See ya.